0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So we dive into another section of James this morning. And as we prepare to do so, a question for you. So what are you waiting for? What is are you waiting for? I bet if we went around the room here or if we took an online poll with those who are watching online right now, um, we'd get a variety of responses, but I bet we'd get several. Because the reality is, all of us are waiting for something. If you really think about that in your life, you're waiting for something, or maybe you're waiting for someone. And if you're like me, you don't like to wait. I don't like, most of the time, waiting for things. I think some of that's human nature. I think a lot of that is our culture. We're taught that that waiting is a bad thing and none of us like to wait. And so when we sit down in that restaurant and we're waiting for the, the, the service person to come, the waiter or the waitress or what have you, and they don't come, we begin to get a little frustrated, right? Or let's be even a little more relevant here since we're in the post-COVID world. So, with Uber Eats or Grubhub or however you're ordering your food to come to you, you ever had that experience where it says it's going to come at this time and it doesn't? And how well does that go over with you or with me? I'm hungry. Come on, let's go. Let's let's get this. Or, you know, maybe you're having experience like I've had here recently. Um, With some tax stuff, with my mom's estate and our tax stuff, I got a letter from the IRS some months ago, and I needed to call them. And so I've kept track, and I've called them 13 times in two months. And after navigating this really complicated phone tree and bidding on hold and waiting and waiting and waiting, I keep getting this message that says, yeah, we're too busy, call back. 13 times. I'm a little impatient with that. I don't really appreciate waiting for that. Or, you know, in this, in this world of prime delivery, thanks to Amazon, you know, we sign up, we get whatever online, and we get, we get going with Amazon, and we expect our prime package to arrive tomorrow, by the way, and it doesn't, and we're frustrated, right? Okay, all first world, first world problems, Inconveniences. But there's types of waiting that that we're doing that that aren't quite so inconvenient. They're significant. And I know a number of you can relate to this. It's waiting for that scan to come in, that blood test, that medical test, that biopsy. What's it like to wait for that, for you or for someone you love? Or, Or what about waiting for that relationship at some point someday to get better and it just doesn't seem to be happening with with a family member a, a relative a coworker, a boss and it just doesn't seem to get better or you have this health condition that you're up against and again it just doesn't seem to be getting better it just it seems to be getting worse and so you wait and you wait and you wait And the passage that we're going to look at today talks about waiting or being patient seven times in just a handful of verses. So if you're waiting for something, if you're waiting for someone, or if you're in this posture of waiting, which I would submit to you, we probably all are in some way, this is right up your alley. This passage, this word is is for me and is for you. And in particular, if we just look at the, the scope of what we're talking about here last week James had some very necessary, hard, but truthful words for the rich people, the wealthy people. And in this context, these wealthy people, these rich people were exploiting their workers, many of whom were part of this church family that James was writing to. And so these words now come to a people who are being exploited and taking advantage of and wronged. And under any circumstances or evaluation, we would say they're being exploited. This is unjust. This is wrong. And yet he tells them to wait. So how can he, how can he say that? And what does that really practically look like? And, and why would you do that? Well, we're going to do business with all those questions in this passage this morning. So this is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. We're picking up where we left off last week. And he says this. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord's full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Man, again, more strong words, but necessary words from, from James. So let's look at what he's talking about here. For starters, I think you and I have this natural bias against waiting. Our culture promotes that. I think our own nature sometimes gravitates that way. We don't like waiting for anything or, or anyone. You know, I was in a coffee shop earlier this week. And there were a number of people in line, and some were waiting to order, some were waiting over in the the service area where they're waiting for their drinks to come up, and every single person as they were waiting was doing what? They were on their phone. Everybody. We're talking about 15 people. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Why? Why am I on my phone when I'm waiting in a line like that? Why are you? I mean could it be that we feel like we got to be doing something and waiting feels like such a profound waste of time and yes there's probably some distraction going on there with that phone as well but I think there's a, there's a bigger desire to just not be doing nothing I mean I I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something and yet here's James telling us to wait but what's important for us to understand is he's not telling us to do nothing so you'll be relieved to hear that I was As I studied this passage a little more, he's not saying do nothing. In fact, quite the opposite. He's saying wait with purpose. Wait with expectation, especially when it's hard. Look what he uses as an analogy. He says consider the farmer. Now, in an agrarian culture, everybody would have known what this meant. But I think for us being most of us removed from that, this this takes a little A little studying, a little bit. So he says, consider a farmer. Okay, well, in the ancient Near East, in that region of the world, you know, the rains came in the autumn and the spring. So that's you wanted to make sure you planted then because that was really your only chance to have a crop. Not a lot of irrigation systems back then. People lived close to bodies of water. That's why the the Nile River Delta was such fertile and so um, precious land in the ancient Near East because it was near a water source, Right? So not a lot of irrigation, so you were wholly dependent on the rains in most parts of that part of the world. If you planted a crop, man, you hoped that the autumn rains came, that the spring rains came, because that's what you needed to have happen. So in between the times when you had the autumn rains and the spring rains, as a farmer, what were you doing? Nothing, right? No. Actually, you were quite busy. You were fertilizing, you were cultivating, you were hoeing, you were protecting what you had planted. Many of my relatives live in eastern Oregon, and many of them are dry land wheat farmers. You want to get a fight going? Tell them they don't do anything but wait around for rain. They're some of the hardest working people I know. And that's the point here. That's why he's bringing this farmer analogy is you need to wait, but wait with expectation, but but that's hard to do especially when life is hard. But look what he says as motivation because the Lord's coming is near. He actually says that twice in this passage. The Lord is coming. And there was this attitude, this expectation that Jesus could come back at any time. You see that constantly in the New Testament this necessary expectation that Jesus is going to come back so why do you wait expectantly because he really is going to come back so do you live like that does that challenge your daily life especially when it comes to waiting that as long as this may be going on as long as you may be waiting the lord is going to come back and that and that matters that greatly matters In fact, because of that, he says, stand firm, which I love. In another translation, it says, um, not just to stand firm, but to establish your heart. Remind yourself of what is truly real. And this is really, really important, and I think this goes to the heart of what James is saying here. Too many of us live by our feelings and not by what we know. You ever thought about that? How many of us live by our feelings rather than what we know? It is not an issue of if Jesus is going to come back. Jesus will come back. He absolutely is coming back, and he could come back at any time. And James is appealing here to what we know, not necessarily to what we feel. Live by what you know, not by what you feel. And for folks who were hearing this in the situation they were in, boy, this must have been really challenging for them to actively wait for God's judgment and justice because they were being wronged, they were being exploited. It just just wasn't right. But there is hope very necessarily embedded into what James is telling them. Because Jesus is going to come back, that has huge implications for how we live life now, and yes, for how we wait for Him to come. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? And please don't shout that out. This is rhetorical. <laughs> but we're all broken, we're all selfish. The closer you get to God, the more intimate you are with Him, the more you realize just how broken and selfish. And sinful you really are. Do you realize that everything that's broken about you, everything that's selfish and sinful about me has a shelf life? Someday, I am going to be made completely whole in fairness through the power of the Holy Spirit and having Jesus Christ in my life. And for those of you who have made that decision, Him being in yours, He is progressively making you into who he's always created you to be. He's, he's calling forth the image of God that's always been there, but has been marred and stained and corrupted by sin and selfishness. So we're in process for sure. But someday I'm going to be made completely whole. And what that means is when Jesus comes back, all wrongs are going to be made right. And that reality is what he's appealing to, to these folks who just, I just wonder how they were hearing this. When they're being wronged and exploited and there's injustice and it's just not right and it's not fair and they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And he rightfully reminds them, man, the Lord is going to come back. All wrongs will be made right. So in the spirit of what in the world should we be doing then while we wait? Well, we, just, we join the divine rescue mission. We join the mission of wherever there's something wrong and broken with this world, if we can do something about it in the name of Jesus Christ, we do something about it. That's in part why we do Vacation Bible School. It's not because we don't have anything to do. It's because we believe that God wants all people to know him, to love him, and to live in right relationship with him. If there's something broken we, and we can do something about it, we do. One of the things that runs in the background here and has for many years is a ministry called ARMS, Abuse Recovery Ministries. It's for those who are abusers, and it's for those who have been abused. And it's a safe place to come and do business with that. And I was talking with someone in the community not long ago who years ago came to ARMS here. They were in an abusive relationship, and, and they found a safe place to be able to do business with that and eventually escape from that. And we helped. And that's, that's what we do. Wherever there's brokenness, we do something about it. But he has some other words for us as well. He gives them three examples of what it means to be patient. He mentions the farmer, what we've just looked at, but he appeals to the Old Testament prophets. And then he appeals to Job. And this is the only time in the New Testament that Job is directly talked about, incidentally. But what does he say? He says, man, at times you're going to suffer, but you suffer with patience and you suffer with prayer. I have a mentor who I meet with every so often. We've met for years and years and years, shared our lives together for many years, and he has a profoundly difficult relationship with his son, both and his wife do. And there's a lot going on there, and we don't have time to unpack that, but his son is a, is a young adult now in his late 20s, and I've seen this man love his son in the best way he can, and he's not perfect, but, but he has been a very engaged, loving, purposeful father, and his son won't receive it, and his son won't respond to it, and his son, quite frankly, is awful to him and awful to his wife and because i know this is going to be a shocker but dads and moms can sometimes parent differently and not always agree on parenting he constantly is pitting them against one another and so at times their marriage is really conflicted and it centers around him and he knows exactly what he's doing and it's it's incredibly difficult and i've seen both him and his wife suffer through the years literally trying to figure out how do we reach this kid how do we love him how, how, do we, how do we serve him? How do we care for him when he just is awful to them and to those around him? And I've watched this man be so patient with this process, and it's been a hard one. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they continue, they continue to wait. And we have this appeal to Job. You ever heard the expression, the patience of Job? Sometimes it's tossed around like that. But Job was more than patient. He was perseverant. I mean, think about this with me. Think about losing everything that matters to you. Job, as the story goes, lost his wealth. He lost his health. He lost his kids. He lost, really, his community. And he lost the support of his wife. Do you remember what she said? In her despair, and we're not, you know, criticizing her, who would not be despairing in that situation? But she basically told him, hey, just curse God and die. Be done with it. And yet we see Job, in fact, almost the entire book, is how he responds to this. When his life just literally falls apart, he prays. The whole book really is this book of, of prayer, prayers of protest and pain and anger and hurt and lament. Prayer isn't just the last resort for us, especially when we're waiting, especially when it's hard. Prayer is the, the, the first resort and the last resort. I mean, when's the last time you've talked with the Lord about what you're up against? Because it's so easy for us to just distract ourselves and numb ourselves when we're struggling and when we're, when we're really suffering. So we busy ourselves or we bury ourselves on our phone or movies or electronics or social or whatever it is instead of going to the Lord. And you know, we looked at this dynamic last week, but we think we have more control over our lives than we really do. I mean, we think we've got things figured out until that health scare comes or until that relationship goes south or until there's this loss in our life. And all of a sudden we realize, you know what, we're not in as control as, as we think we are. I've certainly had that experience. And I was talking with someone from another culture who was saying, you know, there's so many things I admire about Americans and that I admire about your culture. But he said, but one thing that, that you guys really struggle with is you don't suffer very well. You just don't, because you don't expect it to ever happen to you. And I thought, boy, you know, at times, guilty is charged. And yet, what did Jesus say when it comes to our expectations of, of difficulty and, and trouble? In John 16, he said, in this world, everything will be perfect. you have all the money you need, all the health you want. All the relationships you could ever ask for. No, of course he doesn't say that. In this world you will have trouble. And aren't you glad, thank God, literally, that he didn't stop there? Because what did he go on to say? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And and that matters. And if that wasn't enough, look what he goes on to remind us. The Lord is full of compassion. And mercy. We have a saying in our family that we say over and over again because it's perspective and it captures this perspective that we've been looking at here, and that is everything for a season. Sometimes really long seasons, but everything for a season. Do you realize the first illustration he used of this is a farmer and he's talking about seasons of rain? Jamie and I recently necessarily sat down and wrote down in detail the bullet points of the last three years of our life. And I tend to be the type that I just kind of keep plowing ahead and moving on and I forget what's happened, and which isn't real great. And sometimes I'm not the most self-aware person because I've forgotten really what's happened. And so it was it was helpful to me just to see, man, what is what has happened even this year? I mean, in January, we're all looking forward to this year of... Um, my mom's post chemo treatments looking forward to probably a final year of life with her doing all these things that were on our her bucket list and ours and and we get word in january that as soon as the chemo stopped the cancer started growing again and she was going to die and if that wasn't enough then you know because of that whenever there's grief and just that kind of difficulty going on in a family there's you know, relational conflict with people in my family of origin. It was extremely difficult. And then we're trying to figure out how to care for my mom when she's across town and, and, you know, doing that and some last minute legalities with, with her estate and trying to figure out how to navigate that. And, you know, I just, all these things that I'd forgotten about, and I'm telling you about 5% of the last four or five months of, of just all these things that have that have happened and it was hard and I remember Jamie telling me necessarily so this is a season we don't know how long this is and yes we're waiting but this isn't forever and that's such important perspective for us to remember everything for a season the Lord is full of compassion and mercy he really is and how we respond to those seasons matters and unfortunately we sometimes respond by grumbling Anyone ever grumble? No, not here. I know, me too. What's wrong with people, right? Yeah, of course we can be prone to grumble. And that's why he speaks to it. And I think this is a very timely word for us because another unique dynamic of our culture is that this is a national pastime. This is what we do as Americans. We grumble. Our culture has taken this to a new height. It's not just accepted. It's our right. It's my right to grumble, so I'm going to exercise that right. And so we complain and we bicker and we argue and we mutter and we gripe and we find fault and we assign motives to people that we don't necessarily know are true and we look for hidden agendas And because it feels so good and it feels so right and justified, especially when we're the ones being wronged. And we're all being wronged on some level in some way, so why not grumble about it? At least it makes you feel a little better in the moment right? And if anyone had opportunity and motive and reason to grumble, it was these people. They weren't dealing with first world, world problems of their grub hub not coming on time. They were literally starving from the people who were exploiting them and withholding their wages from them and wronging them. If anyone had occasion to grumble, it was, it was them. And grumbling when we really begin to think critically about it and step back from it, it's just absolutely toxic. It's poisonous. It's poisonous to relationships and to marriages and to teams. It destroys unity. And notice what he says here. He doesn't just say, yeah, don't do that. That's not a good idea. Don't grumble. What does he say? He says, you will be judged for it. You you can't find stronger language than that. When it comes to talking about sin and selfishness, it's not just a bad idea, we will be held accountable for the grumbling that, that we do. Those are really strong words. Because we have a unique calling as as a community. Because one of the things he's speaking to here is this community is beginning to fracture because they're beginning to grumble against one another, evidently. And as a community, we need each other. How do we persevere? By leaning on each other. Again, let's go back to the book of Job because that was the example, one of them, that he appealed to, that James appeals to in this passage. So what did Job do? He prayed. But he also experienced community. I said he lost his community. Yeah, he did in many ways emotionally. But if you read the story, his community actually came to him. Do you remember what his friends did when they found out all this stuff had happened to him? They dropped everything and they went to him. And for seven days, they sat with him while he mourned and agonized and lamented. When someone's in crisis, if at all possible, you don't Instagram them. You go to them. And there are so many of you who do this well. It was one of the many things that drew Jamie and I to this church so many years ago, was this is a community that genuinely cares and is present whenever possible. And ironically, when Joe's friends showed up, probably their most significant ministry and loving um, actions towards him were when they said nothing the first seven days were their golden days because after that, it all went downhill. Do you remember what happened? They had this wrong thinking about God, this wrong theology that, okay, bad things happen to bad people. So this has happened to you, Job, because you're sinful, because it's a you problem, because there's something that you've done wrong and so therefore God's punishing you. And ironically, they should be praying for Job and at the end of the book, it's Job who's praying for them. And there's so many things we can impact there, and this isn't a lesson on Job, but he is appealing to Job and helping us recognize and remember the value and the necessity of community with, with one another, especially when we're waiting, especially when it's difficult. And that's why we unashamedly are constantly calling you to community here, especially for those of you who are newer to our church family. That's why we appeal to you to do VBS, because there's something that happens when you roll up your sleeves and you serve together. It begins to build community. That's one of my first encouragements to someone who's brand new to our church family is roll up your sleeves and find some way to serve. Not because we're looking to get work out of you, it's in your best interest, because that's how you not only meet people, but you begin to establish community. But the reality is when we're waiting and when we're struggling and when we're hurting, we aren't just tempted to grumble. We can begin to compromise our integrity. And that's what's happening here evidently. He tells them, stop swearing. And he's not talking about colorful four-letter metaphors, you know. He's talking about making oaths and keeping your word. And there not being levels of truthfulness in what they say and do. Evidently, they are not only grumbling, but somehow they're trying to get back at those who are wronging them. They're being taken advantage of, so they're going to take advantage of them. They'll say they'll do something, but they don't really intend to, and, and they don't. And, and the reality is, for Jesus followers, we are called to lives of integrity. There aren't supposed to be levels of truthfulness for us. And there aren't supposed to be layers to whether we're going to keep our word or not. If we say we're going to do something, we do it. If we say we're not going to do something, we, we don't do it. And the reason we do that is because God keeps His word. Does He not? We keep our word because God keeps His word. We fulfill our promises because God fulfills His, His promises, which really brings us full circle to, back to what we really started with and I want to end with with this reality if you were here I think three weeks ago you heard this excellent message from Sean on the passage that precedes this one or rather the chapter that precedes this one and it ended with this there's only one lawgiver and judge the one who's able to save and destroy but but you who are you to judge your neighbor and this reasonably asked the question especially with this strong language in these verses that says we will be judged, okay, well, how does that work? How is it that God can, can judge us? And it comes back in part to the Lord of the Rings. You knew I was going to work a movie, a movie into this somehow. I'm not even going to try to work in Thor, Love and Thunder. It's, no, not even close. So in Lord of the Rings... In the trilogy of The Hobbit, the second movie is called The Desolation of Smog, and these dwarves are going back to reclaim their kingdom and they come to the people of Lake Town who live at the base of the mountain and there's a dragon, by the way, in the kingdom of the dwarves and the people of Lake Town don't want them to wake the dragon up and they do and you can watch the movie to see what happens. But there's this heated argument at the time going on between really the informal leader, the true leader of Lake Town and the leader of the dwarves. His name's Thorin. And it's getting really impassioned. And finally, the leader of the men of Lake Town looks at Thorin and says, "You have no right to do what you're to do what you say you're going to do." And Thorin looks right back at him and says, "I have the only right." And the reason he could say that was because it was his kingdom. He and his people built it. They they owned it. And that's what James, in part, is saying here. God can judge us because he's the creator. He's the one who's able to save and destroy. Where does he get the right to judge us? Well, he made us. We're his creation. He does get to do that. And by the way, God is the only one who has the wisdom to give us what we really deserve. See, you and I can fall into this trap of thinking, well, we know what that person's thinking, we know what their motives are, we know what their real agenda is when we actually don't. We have enough wisdom to be able to build someone up or to maybe even wake them up, shake them up, but not to judge and condemn them. We just we don't know people's hearts, but God does. God is the only one who knows all of us comprehensively to truly be able to fairly, justly give us what He what we deserve. And he's the only one righteous enough to judge. Do you realize he didn't just make up the law? He is the law. He is the standard of of truth. And he's the only one who can save us. That's why he's the only one who can truly judge. It reminds me of a story that I heard some time ago, and maybe you've heard this story before, but it's such a beautiful picture of of how Jesus, as the just judge, can judge us through the cross. And it goes something like this. There is this Native American tribe that once again were fighting for survival during wintertime. Food was scarce. The, The winter was harsh. It was a particularly hard year. And so the chief, who was peerless in integrity and wisdom and and who was truly a just leader of the tribe, established this rule for that winter that anyone who got caught stealing food would be beaten to death because the survival of the tribe literally depended on everyone just getting barely enough to make it, and they just didn't have enough to go around. And so this rule was instituted, and sure enough, it became apparent that someone began stealing from the food stores. And they knew someone was stealing. They just couldn't figure out who it was until one day they caught them red-handed and hauled them before the chief who was going to pronounce judgment. And it was his mother. And so now what does he do? He has to follow through on what he said he was going to do if he is just, if he is truly the judge. But he's going to kill his own mother? Really? And so what does he do? So he takes off his headdressing and takes off everything that shows his authority. And he humbles himself and he comes down and he wraps his arms around his mom and covers her body and says, let the beatings begin. And he dies so she doesn't have to. Is that not a picture of what Jesus has done for each one of us on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the cross... Jesus takes my selfishness, my sinfulness, my awfulness, all the things that I don't want you to know about me, all the things that I'm ashamed of. He removes those things from me, and in its place, he gives me his righteousness, his power for right living with him and you. And someday, he has this promise that will be fully realized for me that I will be made completely whole because he's the just judge who died for me and rose again to new life. And so we wait. We live our lives not by what we feel, but by what we know. And so as we continue to do business with what we've heard here this morning, I want to invite you to just close your eyes, um, bow your head. I'm going to put some... Questions up on the screen that I will read to you. If you want to open your eyes and look at them, that's fine. God hears your prayers, whether your eyes are closed or open. For those of you who are watching, listening online, however, you can do this. We want to encourage you to do so. But let's, let's invite him now to help us truly apply this to our lives. So, first off, what are you waiting for right now? As you think through your life. What are you waiting on God for? What does it mean to wait with expectation? What does it look like to actively wait? How have you been grumbling lately? Can you call out what it is between you and God and ask for his forgiveness? What does it mean for you to persevere? What does that look like for you right now? Finally, how do you need to keep your word? What does that look like for you right now? Lord, I pray for all who are listening to this, for those of us here in the room, those online, that, Lord, we would wait with expectation. The reality is we're all waiting for something. and Some things are more significant than others, but we're all in a posture of waiting. And, Lord, most of all, we're we're waiting for you to come back. So with the words that you've given to James truly have meaning for us. The Lord, it's not a question of if you will come back, but when you will come back. Would that truly be something that engages our daily reality? Would we not settle for grumbling and being impatient and judging other people? But Lord, would we choose instead to be faithful and patient and perseverant? Because that's how you are. And you give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to live just like that. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's listening to this who has been waiting to call you their Lord and Savior, to make you their God, that they would wait no longer, that they would choose to do just that here this morning. And we thank you again for the power of your word, the practicality of your word. And how you use it in our lives to make us more like you. Thank you for your goodness to us. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And again, God's people said, amen. amen. So would you stand with me? I know that we normally end our time with music worship. But our students blessed us with a really long worship music worship time in the very beginning of our time. And so we're going to end with these words out of 1 John. Actually, no, let's do 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We'll do that instead. And I think this is timely good perspective for us in light of what we've heard here this morning. But just let this soak in with me here this morning. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I promise it gets better. Here we go. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God, And speed it's coming. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever amen. Lord, as we go from here, would we live in a way that is distinctive? Would we wait patiently and perseverantly for you to do your work and ultimately for you to come back? But until that day comes, would we live for you? Would we love you? And would we remember who we are in you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And once again, God's people said, amen. Amen. So go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.